then they can turn it up as needed. All right. We're going to go to Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. You may be seated. Mark 12 and verse 28. And I will uh, endeavor. I know that about the last six or seven weeks I have taken uh, my sweet time uh, to go through uh, a series on holiness. And so I, I am endeavoring tonight to maybe even end a couple minutes early. We can get the, the cleaning done at the church, and then we can enjoy some nice outside time. Amen. All right, well, so if you help me tonight, maybe we'll get done early. If anybody believes that, say amen. All right. Now, there's a lot of pressure now. Are you ready for the speed read? Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came. And having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like... Uh, or the second is uh, very similar to this in degree or importance. He says, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. We are launching into what may very well turn into a series. Maybe it's just two lessons, one lesson, I'm not sure. But there's a lot of material here to chew on. Uh, but... I'm simply going to entitle it, Love Thy Neighbor. Amen. Luke 10 and verse 25 begins to relate to us a portion of Scripture that if you've been in uh, really any church, any portion of your life, you are familiar with. However, it would be a mistake for us to assume that everybody in this room knows exactly what we're talking about. And so we need to establish and revisit some pieces of this. And Jesus is again teaching the people and a certain lawyer stands up and tempts him. What is it about lawyers? Just kidding. I worked with a good lawyer last week, so... Amen. I'm thankful for godly lawyers and godly doctors and godly janitors, godly people of all walks of life. Amen. He said unto him, or this lawyer began to tempt him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So we know that this is not a sincere question. This is a temptation of Jesus. And he said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? Or how do you interpret this? And the lawyer said unto him, it's dangerous asking a lawyer how they interpret something. <laughs> you're, you're getting onto some thin ice there. And the lawyer says back to him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as Thyself And Jesus answers him in verse 28 and says, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who 
is my neighbor. There's that legal eagle side of him coming out right now, that, that lawyerly side. He is not seeking to obey the commandment. He's not seeking to fulfill the commandment. He's seeking to justify himself. He's seeking to excuse himself. He's seeking the loophole for the commandment that will allow him to weasel his way through into eternal life. And so Jesus begins to tell him a parable that we're quite familiar with in Scripture. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so he says in verse 30, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Everybody say they beat him half to death. Just like a certain parent of mine promised to do if I didn't clean my room on time. <laughs> so this, this poor man, now this, this route from Jerusalem to Jericho was well known in the days of Jesus for being a place where there were a, an abundance of thieves. This is, this is not an uncommon occurrence. For us, it would be an uncommon occurrence. Uh, if, if one of you was you know, on your way to church tonight and you were pulled off of your donkey and you were beaten half to death to within an inch of your life, uh, that, that would be a, an uncommon occurrence. But this, this section of road was known for being a dangerous section of road. There were bandits, there were robbers. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So there's a, a man of the cloth, a, a priest, a Levite, is also heading down this road. And he sees this man half dead. And instead of risking ritual uncleanness, he walks to the other side of the road and walks around him. And now a Levite, when he was at the place, came and he does something that the priest didn't even do. He looked on him. And then he passes by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. You see, he was not like the priest that was more concerned about himself. He was not like the Levite that at least looked upon it. It's, you almost get the picture that the priest was like, oh my goodness, if I even look at that. The Levite at least looked at it. But then something stirred in the heart of the Samaritan where he was not content just to look at the problem. But something moved in his heart. And the Bible says that he had compassion on him. You've heard this before, but it, it needs to be repeated. The Samaritan was not of of the same social class as this certain man that was beaten half to death. The Samaritan to a Jew would have been an undesirable individual. In fact, we can see example of this in the time of Jesus as the land of Samaria lay between Galilee and Judea. The Jews would commonly cross over the Jordan and circumvent the land of Samaria, not wishing to interact with these unclean people or non-Jewish or only partly Jewish people. That's why when Jesus decides in John chapter 4 that he has to go through the land, the Bible says he must needs go through Samaria. 
Samaria. He was not about to, to miss a moment or an opportunity. But here comes this man that looks unlike him, that is not in the same social class that the Jews would not even eat at their table. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, Peter would have considered them unclean were it not a word from the Lord. And indeed, in Acts chapter 11, other Jews begin to accost Peter for even going to the Gentiles. But Jesus says this Samaritan comes and he has compassion on him. And he comes to him and he binds up his wounds. He pours in oil and wine. He puts him on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Now, we didn't, nobody rode here on a donkey today. But how about your Chevrolet or your Ford? You've got your pickup. I, look, I'll be honest with you. If I'm picking up a half-dead, bloodied man on the side of the road and I'm going to run him to the hospital, it will at least cross my mind to put him in the bed of the truck. <laughs> All right? I can hose that out. That's not a problem. But instead of riding the donkey himself, he takes the time to pour oil and wine into this man's wounds. He, he begins to bandage this man's pain. He begins to dress his wounds. He has compassion on him. And my goodness, that ought to be how we react to anybody that we come across that is hurting and wounded and bloody. It's going to cost us oil. It's going to cost us wine. We're probably going to get blood and dirt and grime on our seats or on our couch, but it is going to take our time. It's going to interrupt our schedule. It's going to interrupt our schedule. It's going to eat up our free time. We're going to have less time for hobbies. We're just going to keep going here until something breaks. We're going to have less time for self. We're going to have less time for our own entertainment. But it's going to cost us to begin to have compassion on somebody that's hurting. And so he takes him to the inn. And the Bible says he took care of him. He didn't just abandon him at the inn. It wasn't a quick trip to the hospital where he threw him out at the doors of the ER and quickly ran over to the car wash to hose out the bed of his pickup. No, he stayed at the inn and he took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, that means he, he was with him all night long. A stranger that he did not know who has now bled all over his donkey and he's poured all of his oil and wine into his wounds. He spends the night with him at an inn and the day comes where he has to continue his business. And so he pulls out two pence and gives them to the inn and says, take care of them. And whenever I come back, I'll settle up anything that I owe. And Jesus it's the question, which one among these three was neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? And of course, the answer is he that showed mercy on him. So Jesus said unto him, go and do thou likewise. To the lawyer that was seeking to justify himself and create a loophole, Jesus said, your neighbor is the one who's in need. The neighbor is the one who's willing to show mercy. Mere proximity is not the measuring stick. Cultural or ethnic sameness is not 
the measuring stick. A language barrier is not the measuring stick. It is compassion and it is mercy that demonstrates our commitment to our neighbor. So I ask you today, who's your neighbor in this community? Yes, certainly it is the house next door, and I'm thankful to have my neighbor here tonight. It's, it's the house across the street, but it's so much more than that. It's, it's the person that you see having a bad day at the store. It's the coworker that you see that's really going through it. It's the one who's down and out and passed out in the gutter. It is all of those people. Now, God took the time to instruct his people on how to treat each other. Even in the supposedly barbaric Old Testament, if you listen to modern culture, they talk about the Old Testament as if it's like this horrific, horrible time to live in. Now, again, I, I, I thank God that I live under the new covenant. I thank God that I get to live at this point in time where I get to live, where I can have the name of Jesus called over me. As a Gentile, it would have, it would have been completely different for me anyways. But even in the Old Testament, listen to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 11. As, as uh, Moses is, is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, listen to how God directs his people. He says, ye shall not steal, neither deal falsely, Neither lie one to another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until morning. Here is the Lord ensuring fairness in business dealings. He's looking out. For the little guy, and he says, look, if you owe your laborer money, don't send him home and say, I'll, I'll come back and you, I'll give it to you tomorrow. He said, you, you give it to him that night. Verse 14, God gives some more direction. He says, thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but thou shalt fear thy God. Again, he says, I am the Lord. Why is this verse inserted in Leviticus? There's just a verse. Of course you're not going to curse the deaf. I don't think anybody in here is going to be cursing the deaf. I don't think anybody in here is going to be putting a stumbling block before the blind. If, they, if you were, you, man, you need to repent. That, ain't, that just ain't right. But God is ensuring proper treatment of the disabled or the handicapped. He's looking out for this. That See, if, if you're the lawyer trying to justify yourself, then you might think, well, he said I can't curse the deaf and put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but he never said I couldn't put a stumbling block in front of the deaf and curse the blind, so here we go. That's not what God is saying. He's establishing a principle of treatment of those who have deficits or who are handicapped or who are disabled. He's dealing with how we demonstrate our love to our neighbor. He says this, you shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. 
God's design, God's plan, was for the justice system to be equitable, to be fair. He said, look, don't respect the person of the poor and don't honor the person of the mighty. Justice is supposed to be blind. Don't pity the poor and let them get away with what they've done. And don't ignore the transgressions of the wealthy. But if there's a law in place, hold everyone accountable to the same system of judgment. He goes on to say in verse 16, Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. Again, the reminder comes, I am the Lord. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. God was so serious about this that even in the Old Testament, you were not allowed to hate your brother in your heart. He finishes in verse 18 and says this, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Here's the reminder. I am the Lord. You see, the first commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is, and it's of the same order or same degree as the first, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And all of the law and all of the prophets hangs on those two commandments and interspersed throughout this, this portion of Scripture as God begins to give us ideas of how we demonstrate love to our neighbor and how we ensure that we're treating our neighbor with due honor and respect. He continually sprinkles this word, I am the Lord. It's a reminder to us that when we're looking at our brother, we ought to be considering the God of both of us. We ought to be considering the one who is both my Lord and your Lord. When I'm treating the disabled properly or I'm engaging in proper business ethics, when I'm living my life on my street and my neighbor's dog keeps going in my lawn or this person over here is having a raging party, I remember he's my neighbor I love him. He's the Lord's child as well. This is my God. This is his God. We're both created in his image. Why does God take all of the time to put that in there? Because he knows the heart of sinful man. Because he knows that even us, filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, will find it within ourselves to walk out of this place and immediately find beef with our neighbor. All right. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in verse 43, You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. If you want a Countercultural verse. There it is. This kingdom culture flies in the face of our vengeance, get even, modern 21st century mindset where we want to look out for ourselves, where we want to 
get payback, where we want to just protect our own image at all costs. If you want a fun study, uh, just as a sidebar, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, you should look up and study out all of the statements or all of the times where Jesus says, but I say unto you. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Bible says that they marveled at Jesus because he spoke with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. How is Jesus able to say this? Well, he is the scriptures walking in flesh among them. And so as he's relaying to them, uh, Leviticus chapter 19, thou shalt love thy neighbor, he, he takes it to the next level. And he says, love your enemies. He goes on to say, uh, as we love our enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, preach or pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect. The publicans were the tax collectors. Uh, Matthew, the person penning this gospel, was a publican. Uh, as this aside comment is coming out of Jesus' mouth, I'm sure Matthew was going like, well, hold on a second here, Lord. What, what, what's happening? The publicans were despised by the Jews. Uh, because, as far as my understanding is, to get the job, you essentially bid to the emperor or you bid to the throne, I can raise X dollars amount of taxes in this province. And essentially, whoever got the bid was then responsible to raise that. And if you wanted to make a living, you had to get it on top of that. And so they were, they were despised because their business dealings were crooked and they were a representation of the hated Roman Empire. But Jesus was saying, look, even the hated publicans, they know how to get along with other publicans. And the, they, they know how to salute their brother. It's much easier for the publican to love the publican. I mean, we could just get super modern with it and say it's much easier for the Republican to love the Republican. Does that help? It's much easier for the Pharisee to love the Pharisee. But let's get into the religious world. Uh, existing in the religious world were the Sadducees who were in control of the temple and the religious system of worship at the time, and they were incredibly liberal and carnal. And on the other side of the extreme were the Pharisees, and they were exceedingly conservative well beyond the point of Scripture to the point of being legalistic. You see, it would be easier for the Sadducee to get along with the Sadducee and the Pharisee to get along with the Pharisee or the liberal to get along with the liberal, the conservative to get along with the conservative. But what about the Christian to the Pharisee? What about the Christian to the Roman? What about that person who happens to disagree with you on the political spectrum? Or what about the apostolic brother who disagrees with you on personal convictions? What about... 
as our world gets crazier and crazier, those that think we've done lost our mind to be living our lives based on a book that they believe was written by an invisible sky being from thousands of years ago. You see, they're not going to treat you with that same level of love. Why? Because God is love, and love flows from God. But we have to remember that no matter how they treat us, that's a child of God. That's a daughter, that's a son of God, and they're far off right now, and they're away from him right now, but they need to feel the love of God from the child of God to their neighbor, to love your neighbor as yourself, to care for them as you wish to be cared for, to nurture them, to, to pour in the oil and the wine, to bind up their wounds, to take the time and have compassion upon them. Of course, we're commanded to love our brother. And that ought to be pretty doable. But we've all been around the church long enough to know that it's not quite as easy as it's commanded. If you've been around Pentecost any length of time, you have seen brethren fight. And it's an ugly sight. Let it not be named in this church. There ought to be nobody in this house of God that you can't have a peaceable conversation with. There ought to be no brother or no sister that you couldn't join arms with and pray with them and have one mind and one accord. That's the will of God for this church. It's the will of God for his body. His body. But the commandment doesn't stop there. Surrounding us here in Watertown are entire denominations that are known in the region for being standoffish to those who are not them. I'm not here to throw stones. I'm not here to name names. But if you engage in conversation with anybody that's lived in Watertown for some period of time, it becomes clear that there are people that are not interested in loving their neighbor. But the truth is this. I want my neighbor to become my brother. I want the neighbor who's bleeding and wounded on the side of the road, who doesn't look like me, who may not hold the same political persuasion as me, who may not even speak the same language as me, or maybe they do all of those things, but they're lost and far from God, and their lives are a wreck and filled with sin. I want them to become my brother. And that is never going to happen unless the love of God flows through me to them. If I'm going to proclaim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if I'm going to declare that I'm trying to love him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then there ought to be inside of me the love of Jesus working. There ought to be flowing out of me the love of Jesus to every single man, woman, and child that I come into contact with. We have no excuse, church. If we're filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, if we're filled with the Spirit, 
Spirit of God. Uh, I know we have bad days. Uh, I know we have hard times, but we've got no excuse to have a reputation for being rude uh, or crude or jerks or standoffish. Uh, there ought to be a reputation upon you on your street as being the kindest, most approachable person in that neighborhood. There ought to be a reputation upon this church of being the most loving, caring, and kind atmosphere that somebody can walk into. If anybody believes that in this place, would you lift your hands for a moment and ask God to help us to walk in His love. Help us, Lord, to walk forward in mercy. Help us, Lord, to walk forward in compassion and in grace. I want my neighbor to be my brother. Lord, if there is any conflict between brethren, I pray, God, before this week is over, it would be made right. I pray that brother would find brother, sister would find sister, and every offense and every wound would be buried so that, again, the love of Jesus can flow through us in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Now, there's not a hard line a lot of times between neighbor and brother scripturally. You'll hear me kind of making that distinction uh, tonight, certainly, and maybe throughout the coming weeks. Uh, as a general uh, brother being part of the body of Christ, neighbor being uh, those that we come in contact to that are not a part of the body of Christ. But it would be a mistake for us to create one set of rules for neighbors and another for brothers. If, if Scripture commands me not to defraud my brother, certainly Scripture also commands me not to cheat my neighbor. If I'm not allowed to lie to you, I'm not allowed to lie to the guy across the street. All right? So there's, there's a massive amount of crossover. Now, I value the opinion and I value the input of my brother or sister in the body more highly. I value your thoughts, your attitudes, etc., more highly than, than somebody who's not yet a part of the body of Christ. Why? Because you and I are connected. You and I are supposed to be supplying one another. You and I are supposed to be helping one another. You see, the sinner, my neighbor, doesn't have the power to come into church and spiritually lock up a service. They don't. By the way, on any given Sunday, it does not matter how many visitors come into the house of God. We, the spirit-filled people of this room, set the tone of the service. We don't have to get locked up. Have you ever noticed that? There'll be a higher number of, of people here, and there'll be such a spirit of intimidation that comes into the room. And maybe you've realized it, maybe you haven't. But it's almost as if worship is subdued and it's quiet and you're like, oh man, we don't want to freak the visitors out. We don't want to worry the visitors. See, they don't actually have the spiritual power to shut down a service. They just don't. But the saint of God who walks in with a bad attitude the saint of God who walks in and he's got an offense against his brother. The saint of God who walks in and they haven't been in the prayer room and they haven't been getting their heart right. Now you have the ability to begin to shut down a service. Now don't try it. Please don't, don't test that theory, okay? Don't try to test that theory. But that's why your opinion matters more to me. That's why your input, that's why your attitude, that's why your spirituality matters more because you're a part of the body. But again, we're trying to bring every neighbor and connect them to the body. 
I don't want them just to be a ship that goes bump in the night. Yes, even if I never see them again, it's still right for me to bestow the love of God on them. If I never see them again, it's still right for me to take the time to pour the oil and the wine in their wounds and bandage them. If I never see them again, it is still right for me to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ without any concern for what I'm going to get back. But Jesus wants them to be a part of the body too. And he wants us to demonstrate that love. So tonight, for the next few moments, very briefly, we're going to talk about demonstrating our love for our neighbor in our words. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25... Paul begins to give us some very specific instruction on Christian living. He says, wherefore, put away lying. Okay, again, why does Scripture take the time to do this? Because there were people in the church that were lying. And so it needed to be dealt with. If it's there, it's there for a reason. And he said, speak every man the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. There's that bleed over between neighbor and brother that I was talking about a little bit earlier. Speak truth to your neighbor. We are members one of another. If you drop down to verse 29, he says this. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That word corrupt is sapros, and it means rotten or worthless in the Greek. Communication uh, is pretty much exactly what it sounds like, but it's actually the Greek word Logos, it is the thought or the word of the speaker. And so he's saying, look, let no rotten or worthless thought or word proceed out of your mouth. Only those things which are good for the edifying or building up that it may minister grace to the hearers. Who's the hearer? The hearer is your neighbor, always. Every person that hears you speak is your neighbor. Or they may be even closer and be your brother. Which leaves us exactly zero space to talk down to anybody because everybody is my neighbor. Has anybody mastered this? No. So we're going to take the time to deal with it tonight because it's certainly an area where each of us has some work to do. It's an area where each of us will utter from time to time words out of our mouth that just maybe aren't quite edifying. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Maybe something slipped out of your mouth today that did not really build up as it should build up. Maybe it wasn't grace being ministered to the hearers. Maybe it was a little bit of anger. 
a little bit of irritability, a little bit of wrath. Certainly not lying or slander. Proverbs 18 and 7 says this, A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Your mouth can really get you in trouble. I learned that as a teenager. I had foot-in-mouth disease. I was constantly putting my foot in my mouth. Now, I will, I will say I'm far from perfect. I'm really happy that nobody amen to there. That was, that was, I admire your restraint. But the Lord has brought me a mighty long way. He has helped me to learn to control my tongue. But he goes on in verse 8 to say this, The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of his belly. The talebearer is commonly in, in other verses, not this one. This, this has an interesting rendering in the New Living Translation, and we're going to read it in just a moment. But that word talebearer is usually translated in the King James as the gossip. The gossip. And the words of the gossip are as wounds. And there's the old saying of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And that's a lie from hell. Because everybody in this room right now, if we thought for just a half second, could flash back to a moment in our life where hurtful words were hurled our direction and we internalize them and still we carry the scars or some even the wounds that are still open and active of hurtful words that were spoken into our life. In the New Living Translation, it says this in Proverbs 18 and 7 and 8. It says, the mouth of fools are their ruin. They trap themselves with their lips. Rumors are dainty morsels that sink deep into one's heart. There's something about the sinful human condition that desires gossip. It's an often under-considered sin. We, we like the lawyer try to justify ourselves by saying, well, I mean, I'm not killing anybody. I have, I have literally heard people say, I, and not, not, not Pentecostals, but that doesn't excuse us because I've heard it there too. But somebody say, well, you know, I, I, you know, I, I hope nothing bad happens to them, but, and begin to spew out you know, I'm not killing anybody except for the character assassination with my words that's going on right in this moment. There's something about the sinful condition that desires that juicy little nugget of news, especially if it's about somebody that we're not all that fond of. All of the sudden, I know something about them, and in a twisted way, it gives me power over them. And I can begin to, to spread or disseminate those words about them. This is, by the way, mainly the basis of social media. Uh, so be careful. This is not just what you're speaking. It's what you're typing too, okay? James 3 could have very well been written about the thumb. 
It's a deadly evil. It's full of all poison, all right? It's set on fire of hell. Your thumb has become your tongue. But it's, it's so addictive, gossip is. It's a dainty little morsel that sinks deep into the heart. And sinful humanity desires it because sinful humanity wants power. Or it's that, it's that revelation that somebody else has a flaw and a fault too. It got quiet in here. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 4 says this. Wrongdoers eagerly listen to gossip and liars pay close attention to slander. If the wrongdoer is eagerly listening to gossip, then what is the, what is the position of those that are doing right? If the liar is paying close attention to slander, then what is the position of one who chooses only to speak truth? Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 18, just as damaging as the madman shooting a deadly weapon is someone who lies to a friend and then says, I was only joking. Fire goes out without wood and quarrels disappear when gossip stops. You want to know the surefire sign of a gossiper? They're always surrounded by drama. If there's drama, they're in the middle of it. If there's a fire in a social scene, look for the gossiper and start untangling the web from there. You'll find the source of conflict when you find the gossiper. A quarrelsome person starts fights as easily as hot embers light charcoal or fire lights wood. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can you being evil, speak good things. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Loving our neighbor in word, loving our neighbor through our words, is a heart issue. It is a holiness issue. Ah, you thought we had made it off of holiness. Wrong. Here we are. It is a heart issue. It is a holiness issue. We cannot be filled with the Spirit of God and have a fountain bring forth at the same time both bitter waters and sweet waters. Corrupt communication ought not proceed out of the mouth of somebody who claims Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And I stand in front of you to say, I have not perfected this. But like we did, we talked about on Sunday, I'm going to walk in what I've attained, but I'm going to forget those things which are behind, and I'm going to keep reaching for those things which are before. Because Jesus is still working on my mouth. He's still working on my heart. But I refuse to be party to slander. I refuse to be party to gossip. I refuse to begin to share words about, certainly about anybody in this church uh, or anybody in general. I don't want it to be named among me. It's a holiness issue. It's an issue of my heart. You never have to be surprised when words come out of your mouth. Anybody ever been surprised when something came out of your mouth? 
Like, where did that come from? No? Or does just nobody want to move? All right. Well, it came from your heart. And that's a sobering truth. It's a sobering fact about ourselves. How is it so easy for us to praise God in one breath and then curse somebody in another breath or call names? Sometimes I think we forget that cynicism and sarcasm aren't a fruit of the Spirit. We'll just dub in some audience noise here on that podcast call, like some applause or something. Cynicism and sarcasm are not fruits of the Spirit. They're just not. But kindness, gentleness, patience, meekness, long-suffering, temperance, and love. James chapter 3 talks basically for the entire chapter about the tongue. The tongue can no man tame. The tongue is set on fire of hell. We control horses by a bit in their mouth or a ship by a rudder. Great fires are kindled by the tongue. But the spirit working within us will help us to tame our tongue and use it to edify. I want to be known. I want the nickname of Barnabas, the son of consolation. I want to be known, maybe, maybe it'll make you chuckle and giggle a little bit, but I believe it's Paul that calls Philemon the refresher of the bowels. I want to be known as the one. When I walk into a room, you're not scared what's going to come out of my mouth, but you're looking forward to encouragement and edification and exhortation and words that are going to build up and strengthen flowing out of my mouth. But every one of us needs the Spirit to help us to tame this tongue and to use it to edify. I want to love my neighbor in my words. I don't believe in creating lists of do's and don'ts. Scripture creates some lists of do's and don'ts. And obviously Scripture can do so. But I have prepared some questions for us to consider as we close tonight. If ever you come across a piece of information, or ever you are questioning whether to say something, run through some of this list. The first question is, is it true? Okay, if it's not true, none of the other questions matter. All right? Is that fair enough? Can we all agree to that? If it's not true, zip the lip. If you don't know if it's true, you need to proceed with very real caution. Now, this does not mean that you can't address concerns with spiritual friends or leaders. You can raise a concern and say, look, I have observed this, and I'm concerned. That's totally valid, all right? Because gossip, it's, it's a little bit slippery, but it has, a, it has everything to do with our heart. It has everything to do with our motive. 
How I talk about my neighbor has everything to do with this inner man. Okay, if it's true, the next question then becomes, is it my truth to share? If I have come across this piece of information or I have made this observation, does it need to die with me? Or am I justified in passing it on? If I observe my brother in a fault or a flaw, and I begin to tell another brother about it, I've crossed a line. There's really only one or two people I should go to, the first one being the person, Jesus Christ, and the second one being my brother, in concern and in love for my brother. I'll point at different people every time, okay? The second one being my brother. But the moment that I go over here and I say to my sister, did you hear about brother so-and-so? What? A knucklehead. He was, he was driving 300 miles an hour down the road. I saw him throw a six-pack out the window. What a knucklehead. Now, we all giggle because that's an obvious line that's been crossed. And we're arguing from the extreme. But when I begin to share this information and I know that it's going to be damaging to the reputation or to the way that that person views another person, I need to stop and I need to investigate my heart and say, why do I want to share this? Why do I want to do damage to the character of my brother in this person's eyes? Why would I? That's not loving my neighbor. Again, that's not saying that I don't go to my neighbor and address a concern with them. We're not going to be a bunch of people that just clam up and never address our concerns. Scripture tells us we are to go to each other in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 18. There are proper ways to deal with conflict. But I don't bring a third person into the conflict to make myself feel better because somehow I'm not as bad as so-and-so. So is it my truth to share? Number three, does it edify? Is it building up or is it cutting down? If the rumor or allegation or piece of information is true, will it result in embarrassment of the target? And if so, we, because we would desire it to be so for us, should seek to deal with that piece of news in the least damaging way possible. Wouldn't you want somebody to do that for you? If you had sinned and somebody found out about it? Would you not? I would rather be taken to a side corner and in love and meekness have a brother or sister in Christ address it with me instead of it just getting around the entire. You see what I'm saying? And this is, it's hard to approach your brother with a concern. Isn't it? It ought not to be. Love covers a multitude of sins. We have to build a culture where I know that my brother Brendan is watching over me. And I know that if it, it has risen to the level of concern for him to come and address me, yes, even as the pastor of the church, for my brother to come and address an issue with me, I need to know he loves me enough that it's coming from a place of love, not just for God, but for his neighbor. 
That's the culture we have to build. Not a place where there's suspicion, where there's gossip, where there's concern, where we're worried about our reputation, but where there's such a deep and abiding love of the Spirit that fills this place uh, that we can go. I could go to my brother and say, look, I, I saw this. Surely this can't be so. I'm concerned about you. And my brother doesn't get offended, but instead receives it as love, saying, hey, somebody's looking out for me me somebody's concerned about my soul's welfare and the silence and unease in the room at times lets me know that we're not quite there but we're going to keep reaching for it we're going to keep reaching for it do it in love do it in meekness all right two more questions the fourth one is why am i sharing this i think I think every Pentecostal should have like a two-step process to posting anything on Facebook. Are you sure you want to share this piece of information? I have seen more politically false gobbledygook shared by apostolics to social media. It is mind-boggling. Stop it. Just stop. Why am I sharing this? What is the motive behind it? What benefit will occur? And finally, does the person I'm speaking to need to hear this? Is this the right person to be addressing this with? Are they trustworthy? Now, if you go to your brother and they refuse to hear it, then you need to find somebody else. It does say, ye which are spiritual, restore such in one in the spirit of meekness. Don't go find the carnal person that just wants to gossip and start trouble with you. Find the spiritual brother with the goal of reconciliation and restoration. Amen. Let's all stand together.